Chapter One of the Jimmy John Boss and Other Stories by Owen Wister. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One The Jimmy John Boss Parts One and Two. Part One One day at Nampa, which is in Idaho, a ruddy, old, massive, jovial man stood by the Silver City stage patting his beard with his left hand, and with his right the shoulder of a boy who stood beside him. He had come with the boy on the branch train from Boise, because he was a careful German and liked to say everything twice, twice at least when it was a matter of business. This was a matter of very particular business, and the German had repeated himself for nineteen miles. Presently the eastbound on the main line would arrive from Portland. Then the Silver City stage would take the boy south on his new mission, and the man would journey by the branch train back to Boise. From Boise no one could say where he might not go, west or east. He was a great and pervasive cattleman in Oregon, California, and other places. Vogel and Lex even today you may hear the two ranch partners spoken of. So the veteran Vogel was now once more going over his notions and commands to his youthful deputy during the last precious minutes until the eastbound should arrive. "'Und if only you have something like this,' said the old man, as he tapped his beard and patted the boy, "'it would be five hundred more dollars salary in your little pants.' The boy winked up at his employer. He had a gray, humorous eye. He was slim and alert, like a sparrow-hawk, the sort of boy his father openly rejoices in, and his mother is secretly in prayer over. Only this boy had neither father nor mother. Since the age of twelve he had looked out for himself, never quite without bread, sometimes attaining champagne getting along in his American way variously, on horse or afoot, across regions of wide plains and mountains, through towns where not a soul knew his name. He closed one of his gray eyes at his employer, and beyond this made no remark. "'Vat you mean by dat winks, anyhow?' demanded the elder. "'Say,' said the boy confidentially, "'honest now.' How about you and me? Five hundred dollars if I had your beard. You've got a record, and I've got a future. And my bloom's on me rich, without a scratch. How many dollars you gif me for dat bloom?" The sparrow-hawk sailed into a freakish imitation of his master. "'You are a little rascal!' cried the master, shaking with entertainment. "'Und if der peoples was to hear you sass old man Vogel in dis style, they would say, poor old Max, he lose his grip. But I don't lose it. His great hand closed suddenly on the boy's shoulder. His voice cut clean and heavy as an axe, and then no more joking about him. Half you understand that, he said. Yes, sir. How old are you, son? Nineteen, sir. Oh, my, that is awful young for the job I give you. Some of those men you'd go to boss might be your father, 
And how much do you weigh? About a hundred and thirty. Too light, too light, and I have keep my eye on you in Boise. You are not so good a boy as you might be. Well, sir, I guess not. But you was not so bad a boy as you might be, neither. You don't lie about it. Now it must be farewell to all that foolishness. Half you understand? You go to set an example where one is needed very bad. If those men see you drink a little, they drink a big lot. You forbid them. They laugh at you. You must not allow one drop of whiskey at the whole place. Half you well understand? Yes, sir. Me and whiskey are not necessary to each other's happiness. It is not you, it is them. How are you met your gun? Fogel took the boy's pistol from its holster and aimed at an empty bottle, which was sticking in the thin December snow. Can you do this, he said, carelessly, and fired. The snow struck the bottle, but the unharming bullet was buried half an inch to the left. The boy took his pistol with solemnity. No, he said guess i can't do that he fired and the glass splintered into shapelessness told you i couldn't miss as close as you did said he you are a darling said mr vogel give me dat lovely weapon a fortunate store of bottles lay leaned or stood about in the white snow of nampa and mr vogel began at them may i ask if anything is the matter inquired a mild voice from the stage stick that lily head indoors shouted vogel and the face and eyeglasses withdrew again into the stage the school-teacher he will be beautiful virtuous company for you at maller agency continued vogel shooting again and presently the large old german destroyed a bottle with a crashing smack Ah he said in unison with a smack aha no one shall say der old max lose his grip i shoot it every time now but the train she whistle i hear her the boy affected to listen earnestly bah i tell you i hear the whistle coming did you say there is a whistle ventured the occupant of the stage the snow shone white on his glasses as he peered out nobody fissle for you returned the robust vogel you listen to me he continued to the boy you are awful young but i watch you plenty this long time i see you work mit my stock on the oiki and the malheur i see you mit my older men my men they say always more and more young drake he's a goot one und i think you are a goot one mine own self i am the biggest cattleman on the pacific slope und i am also an old devil i have think a lot and i like you i'm obliged to you sir shut up i like you und therefore i make you my new superintendent at my maller agency ranch mit a bigger salary as you don't get before if you are a success i raise you some more i am satisfied now sir bah never do you tell any goot business man you are satisfied mit vat he gif you for either he don't believe you or else he think you are a fool und either way you go down in his estimation you make those men at maller agency behave themselves und i raise you 
only i do wish i do certainly wish you had some beard on that young chin the boy glanced at his pistol no 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 my son said the sharp old german i don't want gunpowder in this affair you must act quite und decisive und keep your little shirt on what you accomplish shootin you kill somebody and then pop somebody kills you what goot is all that nonsense to me it would annoy me some too retorted the boy eyeing the capitalist don't leave me out of the proposition 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 now you got mit old max for nothing if you didn't contemplate trouble pursued the boy what was your point just now in sampling my marksmanship he kicked some snow in the direction of the shattered bottle it's understood no whiskey comes on that ranch but if no gunpowder goes along with me either let's call the deal off by some other fool you have not understand my boy won't you get very hot because i happen to make that little joke about somebody killing you but you thinking maybe old max not care what happened to you a moment of silence passed before the answer came suppose we talk business very well very well only notice this thing when older peoples talk oop to me like you have done many times it is not they who does the getting hot it is me old max und when old max gets hot he slings them out of his road anywheres some have been very sorry they got so slung you invite me to buy some odor fool oh my boy i will buy no other fool except you for that was just like me when i was young max again the ruddy and grizzled magnet put his hand on the shoulder of the boy who stood looking away at the bottles at the railroad track at anything save his employer the employer proceeded i was afraid of nobody und noting in those days you are afraid of nobody and noting but those days was different no pullman sleepers no railroad at all we come up to columbia in the steamboat we travel hundreds of mile by team we sleep we eat nowheres in particular met many unexpected interruptions there was indians there was awful bad white men und and if you was not awful yourself you vanished quickly therefore in those days was max vogel hell und repeat the magnet smiled a broad fond smile over the past which he had kicked driven shot bled and battled through to present power and the boy winked up at him again now i don't propose to vanish myself said he aha you are no longer mad mr old max of course i care what happens to you i was alone in the world myself in those lovely wicked days reserve again made flinty the boy's face neither did i talk about my feelings continued max vogel but i never showed em too quick if i was injured i wait and i strike to kill the old paddles are own dugout eh? we ask no favors from nobody we must win our spurs not so now i talk business with you where you interrupt me if cowboys was mit no awful scarce in the country i would long ago have bounced the lot of those drunken fellows but they cannot be spared we must get along so i cannot send brock 
He is needed at Harper's. The dumb fellow at Alford Lake is too dumb. He is not quickly courageous. They would play high jinks mit him. Therefore I send you. Brock, he say to me, you have judgment. I watch, and I say to myself also, this boy have good judgment. Und when you look at your pistol so quick, I tell you quick I don't send you to kill men when they are so scarce already. My boy, it is ever the moral, the say-nutting strength what gets there. Mit always de little pistol behind, in case, just in case. Half you understand? I ask you to shoot. I see you know how, as Brock told me. I recommend you to let them see that accomplishment in a friendly way. Maybe a shootin' match mit prizes. I pay for them. Pretty soon after you come. Und judgment. Und judgment. Oh, here comes that train. Half you well understand. Upon this the two shook hands, looking square friendship in each other's eyes. The eastbound, long quiet and dark beneath its flowing clots of smoke, slowed to a halt. A few valises and legs descended, ascended, herding and hurrying. A few trunks were thrown resoundingly in and out of the train. A woolly, crooked old man came with a box and a bandana bundle from the second-class car. The travellers of a thousand miles looked torpidly at him through the dim, dusty windows of their Pullman, and settled again for a thousand miles more. Then the eastbound, shooting heavier clots of smoke laboriously into the air, drew its slow length out of Nampa and away. "'Where's that stage?' shrilled the woolly old man. "'That's what I'm after.' "'Why, hello!' shouted Vogel. Hello, Uncle Pasco. I heard you was dead. Uncle Pasco blinked his small eyes to see who hailed him. Oh, said he in his light, crusty voice, Dutchy Vogel. No, I ain't dead. You guessed wrong. Not dead. Help me up, Dutchy. A tolerant smile broadened Vogel's face. It was ten years since I see you, said he, carrying the old man's box. Shouldn't wonder. Maybe it'll be another ten till you see me next. He stopped by the stage step, and, wheeling nimbly, surveyed his old-time acquaintance, noting the good hat, the prosperous watch-chain, the big, well-blacked boots. Not seen me for ten years, he he. Nah, usen't to have a cent more than me. Twins in poverty. That's how Dutchy and me started. If we was buried tomorrow, they'd mark him pecunious and me impecunious. That's what. Twins in poverty. I stick to vond business at a time, uncle, said good-natured successful Max. A flicker of aberration lighted in the old man's eye. Mm, yes, said he, pondering. Stuck to one business. So you did. Mm. Then, suddenly sly, he chirped. But I've struck it rich now. He tapped his box. Jewelry, he half whispered, miners and cowboys. Yes, said Vogel, those poor deluded fellows, they buy such stuff. And he laughed at the seedy visionary who had begun frontier life with him on the bottom rung and would end it there. Do you play that concertina yet, uncle? he inquired. Yes, yes, I always play. It's in here with my toothbrush and socks. Uncle Pasco held up the bandana. 
Well, he's getting ready to start. I guess I'll be climbing inside. Holy Gertrude! This shrill comment was at sight of the schoolmaster, patient within the stage. What business are you in? demanded Uncle Pasco. I am in the spelling business, replied the teacher, and smiled faintly. Hell, piped Uncle Pasco, take this. He handed in his bandana to the traveler, who received it politely. Max Vogel lifted the box of cheap jewelry, and both he and the boy came behind to boost the old man up on the stage step. But with a nettled look he leaped up to evade them, tottered halfway, and then, light as a husk of grain, got himself to his seat and scowled at the schoolmaster. After a brief inspection of that pale, bespeckled face, Dutchy, he called out of the door, this country is not what it was. But old Max Vogel was inattentive. He was speaking to the boy, Dean Drake, and held a flask in his hand. He reached the flask to his new superintendent. Drink hearty, said he. There, son, don't be shy. Have you forgot it is forbidden fruit after now? Kid sworn off? inquired Uncle Pasco of the schoolmaster. I understand, replied this person, that Mr. Fogel will not allow his cowboys at the Malheur Agency to have any whiskey brought there. Personally, I feel gratified. And Mr. Bowles, the new schoolmaster, gave his faint smile. Oh, muttered Uncle Pasco, forbidden to bring whiskey on the ranch. Hmm. His eyes wandered to the jewelry box. Hmm, said he again and, becoming thoughtful, he laid back his moth-eaten sly head, and spoke no further with Mr. Bowles. Dean Drake climbed into the stage, and the vehicle started. "'Good luck, good luck, my son!' shouted the hearty Max, and opened and waved both his big arms at the departing boy. He stood looking after the stage. "'I hope he come back,' said he. "'I think he come back.' If he come, I raise him fifty dollars without any beard. Part Two The stage had not trembled so far on its Silver City Road, but that a whistle from Nampa Station reached its three occupants. This was the branch train starting back to Boise with Max Vogel aboard, and the boy looked out at the locomotive with a sigh. Only five days of town, he murmured, Six months more wilderness now. My life has been too much town, said the new schoolmaster. I am looking forward to a little wilderness for a change. Old Uncle Pasco, leaning back, said nothing. He kept his eyes shut and his ears open. Change is what I don't get, sighed Dean Drake. In a few miles, however, before they had come to the ferry over Snake River, the recent leave-taking and his employer's kind but dominating repression lifted from the boy's spirit. His gray eyes wakened keen again, and he began to whistle light opera tunes, looking about him alertly, like the sparrow-hawk that he was. "'Ever see Jeanie Winston and Fatanitza?' he inquired of Mr. Bowles. The schoolmaster, with a startled, thankful countenance, stated that he had never. "'Ought to,' said Drake. 
You a man? That can't be true. Men have never eyes like you. That's what the girls in the harem sing in the second act. Golly whiz! The boy gleamed over the memory of that evening. You have a hard job before you, said the schoolmaster, changing the subject. Yep, hard. The wary Drake shook his head warningly at Mr. Bowles to keep off that subject, and he glanced in the direction of slumbering Uncle Pasco. Uncle Pasco was quite aware of all this. I wouldn't take another lonesome job so soon, pursued Drake, but I want the money. I've been working eleven months along the Oie as a sort of junior boss, and I'd earned my vacation. Just got it started hot in Portland when Biff, old Fogle, telegraphed me. Well, I'll be saving instead of squandering, but it feels so good to squander. I have never had anything to squander, said Bowles, rather sadly. You don't say. Well, old man, I hope you will. It gives a man a lot he'll never get out of spelling-books. Are you cold? Here. And, despite the schoolmaster's protest, Dean Drake tucked his buffalo coat round and over him. Some day, when I'm old, he went on, I mean to live respectable under my own cabin and vine, wife and everything, but not anyway till I'm thirty-five. He dropped into his opportunes for a while, but evidently it was not Fatanitza and his vanished holiday over which he was chiefly meditating, for presently he exclaimed, I'll give them a shooting match in the morning. You shoot? Bowles hoped he was going to learn in this country, and exhibited a Smith and Wesson revolver. Drake grieved over it. Wrap it up warm, said he. I'll lend you a real one when we get to the Malheur Agency. But you can eat anyhow. Christmas being next week, you see, my program is shoot all a.m. and eat all p.m. I wish you could light on a notion what prizes to give my buckaroos. Buckaroos, said Bowles. Yep, cowpunchers, buckaroos, buckaroos in Oregon, bastard Spanish word, you see, drifted up from Mexico. Fogle would not care to have me give him money as prizes. At this Uncle Pasco opened an eye. How many buckaroos will there be? Bulls inquired. At the Mallory Agency? Oh, it's the headquarters of five of our ranches. There ought to be quite a crowd, a dozen maybe, at this time of year. Uncle Pasco opened his other eye. Here you, he said, dragging at his box under the seat. Pull it, can't you? There, just what you're after. There's your prizes. Querulous and watchful like some aged rickety ape, the old man drew out his trinkets in shallow shells. Sooner give em nothing, said Dean Drake. What's that? What's the matter with em? Guess the boys have all the brass rings and glass diamonds they want. That's all you know, then. I sold that box clean empty through the Palouse country last week, cept the bottom drawer, and an outfit on Meacham's Hill took that. Shows all you know. I'm going clean through your country after I've quit Silver City. I'll start in by Baker City again, and I'll strike Harney, and maybe I'll go to Linkville. I know what buckaroos want. 
I'll go to Fort Reinhardt, and I'll go to the Island Ranch, and first thing you'll be seeing your boys wearing my stuff all over their fingers and Sunday shirts, and giving their girls my stuff right in Harney City. That's what. All right, Uncle. It's a free country. Pshaw! Guess it is. I was in it before you was, too. You were wet behind the ears when I was jamming all around here. How many are they up at your place, did you say? I said about twelve. If you're coming our way, stop and eat with us. Maybe I will, and maybe I won't, Uncle Pasco crossly shoved his box back. All right, Uncle, it's a free country, repeated Drake. Not much was said after this. Uncle Pasco unwrapped his concertina from the red handkerchief and played nimbly for his own benefit. At Silver City he disappeared, and finding he had stolen nothing from them, they did not regret him. Dean Drake had some affairs to see to here before starting for Harper's Ranch, and it was pleasant to Bowles to find how Drake was esteemed through this country. The schoolmaster was to board at the Malheur Agency, and had come this way round because the new superintendent must so travel. They were scarcely birds of a feather, Drake and Bowles, yet since one remote roof was to cover them, the indoor man was glad this boy-host had won so much good will from high and low. That the shrewd old Vogel should trust so much in a nineteen-year-old was proof enough at least of his character. But when Brock, the foreman from Harper's, came for them at Silver City, Bowles witnessed the affection that the rougher man held for Drake. Brock shook the boy's hand with that serious quietness and absence of words which shows the western heart is speaking. After a look at Bowles, and a silent bestowing of the baggage aboard the team, he cracked his long whip, and the three rattled happily away through the dips of an open country, where clear streams ran blue beneath the winter air. They followed the Jordan, that Idaho Jordan, west towards Oregon and the Owyhee, Brock often turning in his driver's seat, so to speak with Drake. He had a long, gradual chapter of confidences and events. Through miles he unburdened these to his favorite. The California mare was coring well in harness. The eagle over at Whitehorse Ranch had fought the cat most terrible. Gilbert had got a mule kick in the stomach, but was eating his three meals. They had a new boy who played the guitar. He used maple syrup on his meat, and claimed he was from Alabama. Brock guessed things were about as usual in most ways. The new well had caved in again. Then, in the midst of his gossip, the thing he had wanted to say all along came out. "'We're pleased about your promotion,' said he, and, blushing, shook Drake's hand again. Warmth kindled the boy's face, and next, with a sudden severity, he said, "'You're keeping back something.' The honest Brock looked blank, then labored in his memory. "'Has the sorrel girl in Harney married you yet?' said Drake. Brock slapped his leg, and the horses jumped at his mirth. 
He was mostly grave mannered, but when his boy superintendent joked, he rejoiced with the same pride that he took in all of Drake's excellences. "'The boys in this country will back you up,' said he next day, and Drake inquired, "'What news from the Malheur Agency?' "'Since the new Chinaman has been cooking for them,' said Brock, "'they have been peaceful as a man could wish.' "'They'll approve of me, then,' Drake answered. "'I'm feeding him highest Christmas muckamuck.' "'And what may that be?' asked the schoolmaster. "'You know Cumtuck's Chinook?' inquired Drake. "'Travel with me, and you'll learn all sorts of languages. "'It means just a big feed. "'All whiskey is barred,' he added to Brock. "'It's the only way,' said the foreman. "'They've got those Pennsylvania men up there.' Drake had not encountered these. "'The three brothers, drinker,' said Brock. "'Full, half-past full, and drunk are what they call them. "'Them's the names.' They've brought them from Klamath and Rogue River. I should not think a Chinaman would enjoy such comrades, ventured Mr. Bowles. Chinamen don't have comrades in this country, said Brock briefly. They like his cooking. It's a lonesome section up there, and a Chinaman could hardly quit it, not if he was expected to stay. Suppose they kick about the whiskey rule, he suggested to Drake. Can't help what they do. Oh, I'll give each boy his turn in Harney City when he gets anxious. It's the whole united lot I don't propose to have cut up on me. A look of concern for the boy came over the face of Foreman Brock. Several times again before their parting did he thus look at his favorite. They paused at Harper's for a day to attend to some matters, and when Drake was leaving this place, one of the men said to him, We'll stand by you. But from his blithe appearance and talk as the slim boy journeyed to the Malheur River and headquarters ranch, nothing seemed to be on his mind. Oregon twinkled with sun and fine white snow. They crossed through a world of pines and creviced streams and exhilarating silence. The little waters fell tinkling through icicles in the loneliness of the woods, and snowshoe rabbits dived into the brush. East Oregon, the Owyhee, and the Malheur country, the old trails of General Crook, the willows by the streams, the open swales, the high woods where once Buffalo Horn and Chief Egante and Oitz, the medicine man, prospered. Through this domain of war and memories went Bowles the schoolmaster with Dean Drake and Brock. The third noon from Harper's they came leisurely down to the old Maller Agency, where once the hostile Indians had drawn pictures on the door, and where Castle Rock frowned down unchanged. "'I wish I was going to stay here with you,' said Brock to Drake. "'By Indian Creek you can send word to me quicker than we've come.' "'Why, you're an old bat,' said the man to his foreman, and clapped him farewell on the shoulder." Brock drove away, thoughtful. He was not a large man. His face was clean-cut, almost delicate. He had a well-trimmed yellow mustache, and it was chiefly in his blue eyes and lean cheekbone that the frontiersman showed. He loved Dean Drake more than he would ever tell, even to himself. 
The young superintendent set at work to ranch work this afternoon of Brock's leaving, and the buccaroos made his acquaintance one by one and stared at him. Villainy did not sit outwardly upon their faces. They were not villains. But they stared at the boy sent to control them, and they spoke together, laughing. Drake took the head of the table at supper, with bowls on his right. Down the table some silence, some staring, some laughing went on, the rich brute laugh of the belly untroubled by the brain. Sam, the Chinaman, rapid and noiseless, served the dishes. "'What is it?' said a buckaroo. "'Can it bite?' said another. "'If you guess what it is, you can have it,' said a third. "'It's meat,' remarked Drake, incisively, helping himself, "'and tougher than it looks.' The brute laugh rose from the crowd and fell into surprised silence, but no rejoinder came, and they ate their supper somewhat thoughtfully. The Chinaman's quick, soft eye had glanced at Dean Drake when they laughed. He served his dinner solicitously. In his kitchen that evening he and Bowles unpacked the good things, the olives, the dried fruits, the cigars, brought by the new superintendent for Christmas, and finding Bowles harmless, like his gentle Asiatic self, Sam looked cautiously about and spoke. "'You not know why they laugh?' said he. "'They not talk about my meat then. They mean new boss, Mr. Drake. He velly young boss.' "'I think,' said Bowles, "'Mr. Drake understood their meaning, Sam. I have noticed that at times he expresses himself peculiarly. I also think they understood his meaning.' The Oriental pondered. "'Me like Mr. Drake,' said he and drawing quite close, he observed, they not nice men very much. Next day, and every day, Mrs. Drake went gaily about his business, at his desk or on his horse, vigilant, near and far, with no sign save a steadier keenness in his eye. For the Christmas dinner he provided still further, sending to the grand roaned country for turkeys and other things. He won the heart of Bowles by lending him a good horse, but the buckaroos, though they were boisterous over the coming Christmas joy, did not seem especially grateful. Drake, however, kept his worries to himself. "'This thing happens anywhere,' he said one night in the office to Bowles, puffing a cigar. "'I've seen a troop of cavalry demoralize itself by a sort of contagion from two or three men.' "'I think it was wicked to send you here by yourself,' blurted Bowles. "'Poppycock! It's the chance of my life, and I'll jam her through or bust.' "'I think they have decided you are getting turkeys because you are afraid of them,' said Bowles. "'Why, of course. But do you figure I'm the man to abandon my Christmas turkey because my motives for eating it are misconstrued?' Dean Drake smoked for a while. Then a knock came at the door. Five buckaroos entered and stood close, as is the way with the guilty who feel uncertain. Uh, "'We were thinking as maybe you'd let us go over to town,' said Half-Past Full, the spokesman. "'When?' "'Oh, any day along this week. Can't spare you till after Christmas. Maybe you'll not object to one of us going?' 
You'll each have your turn after this week." A slight pause followed. Then Half past Full said, "What would you do if I went anyway?" "Can't imagine," Drake answered easily. "Go, and I'll be in a position to inform you." The buccaroo dropped his stolid bull eyes, but raised them again and grinned. "Well, I'm not particular about going this week, boss." "That's not my name," said Drake, "but it's what I am." They stood a moment, then they shuffled out. It was an orderly retreat, almost. Drake winked over to Bowles. "'That was a graze,' said he, and smoked for a while. "'They'll not go this time. Question is, will they go next?' End of chapter 1, parts 1 and 2